This is Alex Pearson. Well, that's going to be up to the mayor and his, his family. Uh, again, that is private. That's what I was emphasizing earlier on. There's, there's your private family, and then there's business. And I can tell you, uh, Mayor Tory has been a phenomenal partner. He's been a, a really good mayor for the city of Toronto. And just in my opinion, uh, it's not time to change. Everything's going tickety-boo in Toronto, working well with the federal and provincial government. And uh, what happens in their private life is strictly up to the mayor and their family. Tickety-boo? Oh, no, no. Tickety-not good, which is why John Tory is gone. Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, February the 16th. Yeah, very busy week, very fast week, and... Uh, we punctuate it with uh, something John Tory did that very, very few politicians have to do today. And he did what is called a resignation. And that will uh, be one of his last official orders of business. Uh, certainly passing the budget was the big thing. And thankfully, they got that done after the gong show that you had to listen to on this show on uh, Wednesday. And then, of course, it's all about the transition to Deputy Mayor Jennifer McElvey. And then he cleans out his desk. And for the first time in decades, John Tory will wake up with a free weekend and nothing to do, which for me sounds awesome. <laughs> but when you're a, a guy like John Tory, that is torture because he absolutely loved his job. So we'll go through some of the details of what happens next because we have a very big mayoral race coming up. And whomever gets that chair is going to have a new vision for that city. And so the vision matters. But certainly... Um, I think it's a really hard time for John Tory, you know, handing in that resignation letter, which was very classy, by the way. Uh, but it is over for him now. But he won't go away. He'll, he'll be seen in some capacity. I just, as mayor of Toronto, it is no more. And so you heard there the premier begging John Tory to stay, declaring that, of course, under Tory's watch, Toronto was running tickety-boo. And I'm sorry, it is not, not even by a long shot. And, you know, Ford said uh, John Tory should be forgiven for, you know, a forgivable sin in, in Doug Ford's mind. Um, and that, you know, whomever takes Tory's seat will still get the strong mayor's powers. But he was pretty specific. Don't make changes. If a lefty mayor gets in there, God help the people of Toronto. We saw it before mm -hmm. when Rob was there. Taxes going through the roof, you know, out of control spending, worrying about you know, lining the pockets of city halls, coffers. We have a different philosophy. Our philosophy is put money back into the taxpayers' pockets, reinvest into companies, and that's how you have a thriving economy. But folks, I'll tell you, if uh, a left-wing mayor gets in there, we're, we're toast. I'll tell you, it'd be a disaster in my opinion. Yeah, probably would be. I mean, because you just have to look at the city of Toronto now and ask yourself, how much worse could this city get? And I'd say... A lot worse. I mean, certainly no one can say that John Tory didn't work hard. He did. He worked extraordinarily hard. Um, but but he was he was known to dither. He folded on issues that led, I think, to a lot of the decay that we are seeing in the city today. Because while he came in as a progressive conservative, he lost the conservative side of himself and then leaned into the progressive. So he was able to keep council functional. But it was his inability to take a tougher stand on what I thought were very obvious issues that just further fueled the, you know, the activists who obstructed his budget on Wednesday. But, you know, some of the things that Tory did that I think were a mistake, uh, you know, while he made clear he does not believe in 
defunding police, he waffled on the issue of carding back in 2015 and ultimately bent to the demands of activists. You know, he's happy to throw 47 million more dollars at the police, but what he didn't do is make sure that the Toronto police can actually do the job of stopping violent crime. And sure, we can argue that carding wasn't perfect. But John Tory didn't even bother to improve it. He didn't even bother to ensure that cops could still continue to do intelligence gathering. And frankly, his weakness on this emboldened gangbangers and allowed gun crime to surge all over the city. You know, and in 2019, there he was declar declaring on uh, Twitter, you know, he firmly, quote, firmly uh, believes that a handgun ban would solve the gun issue. But he knew it wouldn't because then he flip-flopped in 2020 admitting to what he did know, and that is gang members don't buy legal guns. You know, and now he's talking about bail and sentence reform, but he still couldn't get the province and the feds to actually take action. I mean, he's had years. And so, look, under his watch, gang violence and major crime has flourished. He dithered on things like Roxham Road, which uh, led to a shortage of shelter beds in this city. It's added to our homeless crisis, you know, because instead of demanding that the prime minister seal the illegal crossing, as Quebec did, Tory himself went out and declared a sanctuary city in 2017. And this allowed undocumented immigrants access to city services that he knew full well we don't have, we can't offer, we can't afford. So instead of demanding that the prime minister give more money, or that you know, illegal crossers be sent elsewhere, as Quebec demanded, he didn't do anything. He just talked. The, these relationships he talked about with the feds in the province that were uh, you know, his, his ticket to keeping Toronto uh, moving, and he was the only one to do that. He, he couldn't make that happen. He did nothing to solve the opiate crisis. Tory completely bought into safe injection sites, and of course those allowed communities to be ravaged by addiction and crime that then further fueled the homeless crisis. And he noted back in 2018 that there was a need for action on mental health and addiction issues, but it was just talk. Look at us now. Here we are in 2023 witnessing the result of inaction because no one bothers to actually come up with a solution. And by the way, John Tory is now gone, and we, uh, like BC, are about to decriminalize hard drugs like fentanyl and, 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 and heroin. I mean, can't wait for that to happen. No one can say that John Tory didn't work hard. He absolutely did. He worked hard for the city, and he's done a ton for charity. But under his watch, Toronto the good is not good anymore. It's dirtier, more congested, less safe more expensive, more in debt, riddled with mental health and addiction issues. Not all his fault, certainly. But the buck stops with him. And it defies what Doug Ford says, which is, no, the city of Toronto is not running tickety-boo, not by a long shot. And so while Ford doesn't see the need for change, maybe that's what we do need. Albeit, he is also right because sometimes the devil we know is better than the one you don't. And there is a big risk that the next mayor could, in fact, feed this progressive festering mess and make things much, much worse. That is always a possibility.
Alex Pearson. Weekdays at 9. We are 640 Toronto. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So just two days, two days after polling reveals a big majority of this country is against the expansion of assisted death to the mentally ill. And about a week and a half after the government delayed its addition until next year. Now, as of last night, thanks to Mark Garneau, who apparently does exist still as a liberal MP, but he uh, was part of tabling these recommendations of a parliamentary committee report where they've been looking into maid services and what to expand, etc. And, well, one of the uh, recommendations includes minors be included. Minors capable of making decisions on their own. What's a minor? Uh, 12. So we're talking about 12-year-olds. And apparently, uh, if this recommendation, which has not been adopted, it's a recommendation, but parents and guardians of a 12-year-old could be consulted and told that their child has decided to look into assisted death, but ultimately, their decision will trump the parents. But it does come at a time when I think, you know, Canadians do show that they are supportive of assisted death, but they are not uncomfortable. They're not comfortable at all with all these additions. You know, it's, it's not just a slippery slope conversation. It's like we've gone off the, the cliff in, in even talking about kids. But let me bring in Dr. Kerry Bowman to this conversation, a bioethicist with the U of T. Thanks so much. Yes. Happy to be here. <clears throat> yeah, you know, I saw this thing come down and I thought, like, wait, what is going on? I mean, if people aren't comfortable with um, the mentally ill being added, added, I highly doubt that Canadians will be at all comfortable with this. And so why even suggest it? Well, you know, this has been a, in, in the pike for, for some time. And, and yeah. so, look, it, it's more complicated than it appears to be on the surface. And let, let me just tell you why. And, you know, you may know these things and so may some of your many people listening, but we don't actually have an age of healthcare consent in provinces such as Ontario and many of the others. So, you know, when people say, you know, it's an exception and, you know, parents make decisions for their, uh, you know, minors, it's actually not technically true. The question is, is the person capable? Do they understand and do they appreciate? So when it comes to children, it's very problematic to be thinking of medical assistance and dying. But let me just briefly tell you about two cases I saw. So in a very, very aggressive um, cancer, if you might remember the horrible cancer that Terry Fox yeah. had that, you know, led to multiple. And that, unfortunately, that's an awful one that hits young people. That's not so common, but it does. So, you know, you've got an 18-year-old who's literally 18 in three months, multiple amputations, multiple metastases, meaning spread. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, um, now he is able to make a healthcare decision with the support of his parents, doesn't need the support of his parents to have medical assistance in dying. Next case, similar, but 17 years of age and eight months, same aggressive cancer with multiple amputations right up into into the body I, I you know i'm not going to get into graphic details 
but she is not able to with the full support of her parents because she is, you know, not of an age. So these kind of borderline cases are actually very, very difficult from an ethical point of view. But, you know, you're asking some fair questions like, you know, are we even on a slippery slope anymore? And did most Canadians see this coming that it would just keep moving from one thing to another to another? Mm-hmm. And, and I think they probably didn't. But, you know, I, I think maybe in some rare cases like the one I've just described to you, I actually think from an ethical point of view, we really need a different lens to start looking at some of those cases. But, you know, a 12-year-old saying, you know, uh, I I wish I was dead is not something that I think that we, you know, I feel so sick from all of this, I wish I was dead, is something that we should just absolutely be acting upon. But we knew these things were coming. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, and you, and we've talked about this, and and, and lots of kids yeah. um, feel like they want to, you know, they get very emotional, they have problems, they want to oh, kill yeah. themselves, you know. Look, the question I think if people ask is, what could go wrong? And you, we've talked about it. Plenty can go wrong when we're hearing about yeah. veterans with, uh, you know, uh, PTSD being offered death. When you, we hear about homeless people or disabilities, where people are saying, "I just can't afford my life, and now I'm going to die." I mean, we know that a lot yeah. of things can go wrong, and so I, I agree there could be an argument. Maybe you ch- take a case to court, and you can say, "Look, this child is terminally ill; they're suffering." Maybe we could put a provision, but I just, you know, a lot of people who were concerned about these slippery slope issues were mocked relentlessly as if they were just crazy, and now here we're at the crazy. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. And and what I'm hoping for, for, you know, uh, people younger than 18, because we have an exception to the law now that medical assistance in dying does have a hard a red line, whatever you want to call it, a legal line at the age of 18. So, so you know, maybe on a case by case with a very, very thorough yeah. assessment, rather than just saying we're going to lift it. Um, but, you know, what Canadians are sensing, and quite rightly so, is that they're, yes, they're supportive of medical assistance in dying. I don't mean every Canadian, but but you and I both know that the numbers show that. But boy, when you get into these kind of cases you've just outlined with poverty and homelessness and, and all these other things, most Canadians can see there's a real problem of justice here. And it's much yeah. more complex than we have thought. And, and so, you know, I, I'm very grateful that we're waiting a year on this. I do hope this year will be well, you know, when I say a year, waiting from, uh, you know, what was going to be, what, March 17th, which is very yeah. close now, uh, pushing that into the year of 2024. I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But I'm also hoping, and I, I wonder about the timing. I'm not sure this is the time to even look at mature minors. But what I'm hoping is if we don't really lift it, that there will be some provision for very complex and nuanced cases for a a much more aggressive external review. Yeah, I mean, this uh, government was warned to put in um, guardrails at the beginning uh, in 2016 by the courts uh, to avoid all this. They didn't. I'm sure they wish they did now because I think they got a real problem. Um, they they were not, uh, the true government did not want it to go further than than what it was. And now they're in a situation where they're having to weigh all this. And, and uh, I don't need to remind you, out of Quebec, they were actually recommending babies. So where could this go? Yeah, at, at one end, point. Uh, they, they, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, no, where it can go is, is really far. And, and you know, I, I think, and I include myself in this to some extent, although I had deep worries and I've been supportive all along. But I, I think, you know, a lot of us as Canadians and particularly our government thought it would be something like gay marriage in which, um, or same-sex marriage in which, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are very concerned at the time and that people accept it and move on and realize we've made moral progress. I don't mean everyone. There's still people opposed to that. But, you know, it really wouldn't be a decisive 
divisive rather social issue. And you know what? That has not happened. Um, this is actually becoming more complicated as we go on. And, and I must say, a lot of the people that I knew that were really aggressive advocates for this have become yeah. very silent now that the complexity <laughs> is here. <laughs> yeah, they're the same people that were all about lockdowns and now go, oh my God, I'm nuts. Uh, why, did I, why did I think that was a good yeah. idea? Yeah. yeah. Well, doctor, I appreciate your, uh, your thoughts on this and your humor. Um, but yeah, I always appreciate your time on this. So stay tuned is all I can say. Happy to do so anytime. All the best. There you go. That's Dr. Carrie Bowman. And uh, yeah, what could go wrong? I don't know with our healthcare system. I mean, in 30 years, can you imagine what could go wrong? A lot. <laughs> They'll just euthanize it. Went on your bed. Here, just go euthanize a bunch of people. So that is a concern. I have no issue with a terminally ill person deciding for themselves, an adult, what they want to do. But I, I don't think any child, no, sorry, not at all comfortable with uh, where this is going. Alex Pearson, weekdays at 9. We are 640 Toronto. 10 arrests have been made and 60 charges laid as a result of 26 pharmacy robberies that took place between December 2022 and February of this year. Of these 10 arrests that have been made, six of the persons arrested were young people under the age of 18. Last year, there was a record number of pharmacy robberies in the city of Toronto, uh, 124 in total. And of those arrested, 69% of them were young persons. So far in 2023, there have been 45 pharmacy robberies compared to 11 at this time last year. Once upon a time, we would not be hearing these kinds of headlines, but this is tickety-boo in Toronto. That's uh, how the Premier would uh, explain it, that it's all tickety-boo. It's not tickety-boo. We have a lot of violent crime, and of course that one you're hearing about is a joint operation by York and Toronto Cops where they did uh, bust this uh, pharmacy ring, 26 of them involved in armed robberies. But uh, you, when you see it, who they charged, I mean, these kids are as young as 14. 10 charged, six under the age of 18, two of them 14. It's just crazy. And when you look to the percentages, 67% of those arrested in these kinds of crimes now are young people. But, of course, this is one of the many, many headlines that we are hearing involving youth crime that is, of course, sweeping across Toronto and the GTA and a lot of other cities. Because on Monday, we heard about these three teens who slashed a woman on the TTC with a knife and then attacked police with a machete. Like, where are you getting a machete? Where's a kid getting a machete? And who would think to walk around with a machete? You know, youth crime's not new, but it certainly seems like it's worse than we have ever seen it. And now it's being escalated where... These kids are getting a lot of weapons that uh, we've never seen before. So what is driving this? I want to bring in Dr. Tracy Viancourt, a University of Ottawa professor and Canada Research Chair in Children's Mental Health and Violent Prevention. Thanks so much, doctor. Hi. What do you make of these uh, headlines we're seeing and, and, and um, you know, what the takeaway for us should be? At first, I didn't really believe them and just because we didn't have any data. But now that we see the data... Um, and how it involves youth, and like you already named them off, so I won't repeat it. Um, I'm quite concerned about it. I was looking at the police report crimes for Toronto just in preparation for this meeting or for this interview, and um, I was struck by how up until 2022, um, the rates looked really good for for uh, the city of Toronto, and mm -hmm. now it seems like things are taking off in the wrong direction. 
Yeah, I mean, we've just, and I've certainly covered my time in crime uh, as a reporter over the last couple of decades, and youth crime's not new, but we would not hear about things like swarmings, you know, with little girls, 13-year-olds. We just didn't hear about these kinds of things. And so what has changed in the dynamic of these kinds of crimes? Is it social media? Is it the pandemic? Or is it a bunch of things? It's going to be a bunch of things. Um, The swarming incident is really atypical, and I think it's going to be atypical um, not, I don't think we're going to be able to say much about that beyond the fact that um, we don't see it often. We don't see girls involved in that type of uh, behavior too often. But, um, but I think there are a lot of stressors um, on young people. Um, and young people are quite vulnerable to the influence of deviant peers. Um, so if they're bored or they feel they don't belong, um, if their needs aren't met, then they tend to affiliate with people who uh, aren't good for them. And uh, they get involved in things that aren't good for society or for the individual. So what do you make of, you know, some of these things? I think a lot of people are saying, well, how, how do we solve this? I mean, we've got a Youth Offenders Act. It's set up to make sure that justice is served. However, the young offender is protected and they have a second chance at life. But we got a lot of youth crime happening where we've got people who are already in the youth justice side of things and they're getting on bail and then they're going to commit more violence. And there's so much resistance, Doctor, and I probably don't have to tell you this, to making any changes. But what could we do? Uh, to address this? Is this as simple as parents becoming more involved and asking about their kids? Is it uh, taking them off social media? What is the uh, remedy? Because it's not just one. Exactly. It's so complicated. It's so complicated um, in terms of why kids are doing this and um, and how to prevent it. So one of the things that we should do is increase monitoring. So studies have shown that parental modern- monitoring is good, um, that kids are less likely to be involved in delinquent acts if their parents are more on top of what they're doing and this in other words that, what like what know, does what does that look like I'm, just what so parent, parents understand is that knowing what their phone's doing watch it checking their phone like what is that no 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 <laughs> yeah. no this means more like asking like where are you going who are you going with when are you going to be home that sort of thing it doesn't mean you're putting your thumb right on them and making sure that uh, you have the password to their phone and snooping um, it, but nothing like that. Just actually just checking in on them. Um, the other thing uh, we know is that um, ed- educational underachievement is not good for children and it's not good for yeah. crime uh, statistics. And we know that there's been a profound learning loss that's happened during the pandemic. So it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. We need kids to be in school. Um, schools are really good places for individuals in terms of um, programming so we can give universal programs. Um, to all students in grade five or in grade nine, whatever it is that we're targeting. We've seen a lot of school violence, too. I mean, and and I think one of the areas, you know, teachers can't discipline kids. You know, they can't they can't really do anything. And and so we hear from a lot of teachers who say they don't know how to deal with violence. We've lost that that respect. You know, God knows when my teacher growing up said anything, you you, you listened because you knew there was a punishment coming if you didn't. Like you you just did not talk back to the teachers. And yet that has all disappeared over the last uh, couple of decades. I think that that has disappeared because there, that wasn't actually appropriate for optimal child development. Um, having children be afraid of their teacher is not a good thing um, to maximize learning and the like. Uh, you think it did, but it actually didn't. I think we hold, we tend to, every generation thinks that the next generation is soft and they're not doing right by them, but that's not what the evidence supports at all. We have more kids living in poverty than we ever have. So if you want to start, fixing things, making sure that kids aren't under pressure 
um, by living in, the, in poverty. We have to address equity issues. We have to address um, this discrimination of certain youth because of their racial background or their gender expression and the like. So there's a lot of things that, could, that we need to address and we need to address it earlier. So if we could engage the school systems really early on preventative programs, that target social emotional learning is just one example, uh, we'll be in a better place where kids are uh, able to self-regulate, better getting along and the like. But really, we have to be thinking about equity when we think about crime in youth. Yeah, uh, look, it, good kid, bad kid, they can all turn and, and go down the wrong uh, way if they don't have guidance and structure. The other thing, though, is, um, Doctor, is that, uh, you know, social media, that was not a thing when I was young. We didn't have to worry about that. We were out doing stuff. We were out playing. There's got to be, um, you know, we know the damage it, it is doing, and yet it's just so pervasive in these kids' lives. Social media is really interesting because there's this whole group of academics who say it doesn't cause harm, and then there's this other group of academics that say it does cause harm. One of the things that's really interesting is it seems to be that adolescent girls are very sensitive to social media, the effects of social media sure. on their mental health. Um, in terms of, like gang membership and delinquency and things like that, there's not that strong of a connection, but really what the connection there is, um, we don't want kids to be um, involved with individuals who have uh, more problematic viewpoints of the world and engage in very bad behavior. So uh, we know that uh, adolescents are very sensitive to peer pressure, that they're more likely to follow along and make poor decisions when they're in a bigger group. So what we want to avoid is having, we call it deviancy training. We don't want to have kids who are vulnerable um, getting mixed up with the wrong crowd. It sounds, it sounds pretty naive, but it's actually, there's tons of evidence to support that that's the, that's the most problematic pathway. Sure. Uh, but again, they get that pathway because their parents buy them an iPhone and, 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 Again, I think it speaks to the fact that there's got to be controls, there's got to be limitations until the child's mature enough for it. Because it's a big world in, you know, on the web, and they can get into an awful lot of trouble very, very quickly because we're hearing about it. Whether it's them getting selfie shots, whatever, or TikTok, where they've got, there's so many things confronting them. But I just, so I'm just going to push back on what you said. Yeah. So they go down that path because they have an iPhone. So. I don't think that iPhones are causing individuals to um, hold a pharmacy up at gang uh, at gunpoint. I mean, no, I don't. I don't think an iPhone's doing. Okay. Yeah. No. I no. I don't think that. I just think that once that's a completely like a side issue. I just think you know when we see kids kind of get in social media, they get a lot of freedom with their phones, whatever, and then they can kind of, you know, those phones have a lot of power. I think that we need to be thinking about the influence of social media, definitely, and especially in relation to mental health. I think when we think sure. about violence, though, and um, delinquency and the like, I think we need to think more about um, resources, equity, um, poverty, stressors that are involved in that individual's life. So poor parental monitoring, poor influence of peers, those sorts of things. So I think the mechanism is quite different. Imagine if we had invested in all this stuff a long time ago when we heard all the politicians saying, we need to invest in where we'd be today, but yet we're decades behind in this. Nonetheless... Thank you for uh, for joining, uh, Doctor. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the conversation. Take care. That is Dr. Tracy Viancourt, who's with the University of Ottawa. Again, this is not obviously an overnight fix. Not a, not in a long way for sure. But for sure, parental parents have to be involved. Have to be.
They just have to be. A lot of this starts at home.